just the other day, I found myself driving with Simeon. It was just me and him, which doesn't happen very often. And, uh, we were, and I said to him, and we had about an hour, um, and I said, well, we got an hour. Um, what do you want to do? And I said, maybe do you want to go to a coffee shop? And Simeon is seven, and he said to me, uh, I don't want to go to a coffee shop. And I said, oh, okay, you know, why don't you want to go to a coffee shop? And he said, because I don't like coffee. And I said, well, you can get other things at coffee. But that struck me a little bit because he's seven, and it sounded kind of appropriate. Like, it was kind of like, yeah, that makes sense that he wouldn't get that a coffee shop serves everything, you know, like anything you could want, basically. And, but what hit me a second later when I heard him say that was my own story with coffee. I'm not a coffee drinker, despite the fact that I have a coffee right now in my hand, and I've been drinking it this morning. I've had an interesting relationship with coffee through my life. And most of my life, I've been kind of anti-coffee. I went to university, and I was a student, and I was a graduate student, and as you may guess, graduate students are very pro-coffee. Um, and so everybody around me was pro-vulnerable. It's embarrassing to say, that I believe it was, I think it was even in university, when I had the thought and maybe even said no to an invitation to go to out for coffee with somebody because I didn't want to drink coffee. Oh, that's hard, eh? It's like a little too embarrassing. But it's like appropriate for a seven-year-old, but maybe not for a 17-year-old, right? We all have our quirks, we all have our... our are things, and one of mine is being a little literal. I can be a little literal sometimes, and I've worked on that. And it's interesting, because today I'm going to be talking about God's call, and I feel today like I'm called to coffee. I, I don't know if that makes sense to you. It's starting to make sense to me. I've been watching videos on coffee, and I'm not going to tell you why, but I have been feeling called to coffee, and I've been watching YouTube videos about coffee, and I've been trying to understand the meaning of coffee and the meaning of coffee in our culture. Barista, he's like a specialist coffee drinker. And he's like, like you know, the, the, what's the wine guy called? Yeah, connoisseur, but what's the wine guy? A sommelier. He's like the sommelier, if you don't know what a sommelier is, a sommelier is like a, a special wine drinker who kind of chooses your wine and evaluates wine. Well, this is the sommelier of coffee. And I was watching him do blind taste tests of coffee to see if he could predict which was the cheap coffee and which was the expensive coffee. And this has been my, you know, part of my beef around coffee my whole life was that, like, who cares? That was basically it. And uh, so I was watching this guy, you know, do, do this coffee evaluation, and, and I learned a lot in about 10 minutes to the point where I was actually getting cocky about now maybe I'm a barista anyways. But it was interesting to watch because he was actually quite good he could actually pick out which was the more expensive coffee, and he was able to guess the range of the coffee prices. And he would go through each coffee, because he, he watched the beans beforehand, he would talk about the bee thought was going on, and then he would drink it, and he would say, and then there was one, it was so interesting, one of the cups, he was like, ooh, these are close together, these are very similar in many ways, and I'm going to have to drink it. And then he was drinking, and he's like, I think this one, but he pulled out his cupper. Have you guys ever heard a cupper before? Oh my goodness, people here are coffee people. So there's a cupper, and in a, with a cupper, it's a basically a spoon. And it's a, this cupper is different than a soup spoon. And he would take the soup spoon, and he would, he would take the coffee with the soup spoon, and he could aerate it. He'd go... 
very much like a sommelier would, right? You know, they spit, they, they, they do all these kinds of things that are kind of embarrassing, but then obviously you become very proud of when you get into the culture. But he would take this, he took this cup, and then he was like, oh, now I can taste something. It's this coffee that is the better coffee. And, and he was right. He was right, and I have this new appreciation. I might even go out and buy a $30 per pound bag of coffee now. It, it like convinced me, like, I wanted to try this. And he was like, this is commercial coffee. And that was like the biggest insult. And I was like, there's other kinds of coffee other than commercial coffee. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> so he's like, this is like, and, and like whether it's dark roast, which kind of hides the flavor versus medium roast and all this stuff. And he did this pour over method. Have you guys heard of pour over coffee? Have, has anybody here actually done pour over coffee? And if does that. A decanter. It looks like a decanter, but it's coffee, and you put a filter in the top, and you have to pour over the coffee, and you have a scale underneath it, and a timer, because it has to be poured within two and a half to three and a half minutes, and you have to have a certain number of, like, poundage of grams per amount of water, so that's why you need the scale, because you have to figure out how much water is going into it, and you can't just measure it, because part of the water is in the bottom, and part of the water is in the top, so you have to go by weight. And so you're pouring the coffee in a certain kind of stylistic round method with a special kettle that has a very long spout, so that you can get a very, like, thin stream of water going over the coffee in this method, and there's, you pour a first part because that's the bloom, and then how much air comes up through the coffee matters because then it's been more fresh. By the way, if you're ever buying coffee and it says on date, because then you know how fresh it is, and it should be roasted on within two weeks. You should be drinking it within two weeks, and you should probably be grinding it within a minute of actually drinking it. Oh, and of course, if you're doing this and you're using a paper filter, which is what you do with pour-over coffee, you must rinse the filter because there is paper dust on the filter, which you have to get rid of because you can taste the paper dust. So you rinse the filter, you swish it to make sure that the thing, the glass, that you're, the decanter thing is warm because you don't want it coffee going into a cold pot. And then you pour the coffee and you take your cupper and you taste the goodness. Oh, what an experience. I don't even know why I'm telling you all this, other than to say, maybe I know why, God is surprising. I never thought that when I was in university and I was wondering whether I should even care about the difference between instant coffee and commercial coffee versus a Tassimo and kind of rolling my eyes when everything, anybody ever said anything about coffee, basically, that I would now become a wannabe barista. I would want to try these coffees. I would want to know more about coffee. And it's not just because of the coffee, although I am curious. It is also because it's a cultural experience. I love the idea of people standing around and having something to talk about as they pour in various circles and as they weigh and as they time. It just creates this community atmosphere. I remember when the water went out on our street when I was living with my parents and we would all stand around pouring buckets of water at the thing on the street outside and we would get to know our neighbors and it feels a little like that. Is it about the coffee? I don't know. I think it's about the fact that we get to talk about something. I probably shouldn't have told you all this because now I don't have anything to talk to you about if we actually do this together. I can't tell you this story. I've told you all at once, kind of ruined it. Maybe we still find something to talk about, like the actual kind of bean. Did you know there's different kinds of bean? Like, if you go and buy apples, there's different kinds of apples. There's actually that kind of variety within coffees. Anyway, God will surprise you and continue to surprise you. 
just like he's surprising me with the importance of coffee and how it relates to him. And having community, relating to people in our culture, God wants us to do everything we can do in order to reach the few, including pour over coffee. Talking about God's direction, and we were talking about ambiguity and how we don't actually know perfectly God's direction. We have to step out in faith in order to please him. Today I want to talk about being rigidly attached to the words that we have been given. Being rigidly attached to the words that we have been given. So I'm a psychologist, I work with people, obviously I work with couples, which is one of the things that I do. And one of the things that couples will come in with is pride around their knowledge of their partner. They will come in and they will feel and be proud of the fact that I know my partner so well. And it, it is something that is positive, generally speaking, you would think, and I would encourage people, I mean, part of therapy and having a relationship is to get to know each other and to get to know each other well. So why would I have a problem when somebody comes in and says, I know my partner really well? I get nervous when people say that to me now. And I will tell you why. I find that there is a tendency for couples to have conversations that only involve one of them. People will spend much of their time, especially when they're in distress in their relationship, having conversations with their partner that their partner doesn't know they're having. They will be there and they will be imagining these conversations with their partner and their partner in their imagination will be saying things back to them and they will have an emotional response and hold their partner to account for what they said in their imagination. And this is strengthened if they feel that they really know their partner well. If I know my partner so well, I actually don't need them to have a conversation with them. I know what my partner is going to say. I know what he's going to say when I say this. I don't even need to sit down and ask him. I know what she's going to say if I say that. Which leads to tremendous misunderstandings. So they come in and they say, but I already know what he's going to say. Ugh. The other thing that happens is there's less curiosity. I don't care to talk to my partner. I don't need to talk to them because I already know what what they're going to say. It's like, why would I read that book? I read that book already. So they don't talk anymore because there's no curiosity. I already know them so well. There's no surprise. I have had a per, uh, couple come in and they've done the most odd things because they felt that their partner wanted them to, even though they never had a conversation about it. They will have an affair and believe in their minds that their partner wanted them to. They will believe that my partner, yes, I believe they wanted me to have a fair. I don't think they love me anymore. This is how it will go. I don't think they love me anymore. And I think that they were trying. From everything I know about them, and I know them well, Cyrus, everything I know about them was saying that they don't love me anymore. And I think, I'm pretty calm. I was so confident that they didn't love me anymore and that they just couldn't break it off. Because why were they in the relationship if they didn't love me and they just couldn't break it off? And I was having trouble breaking it off, so I had the affair to help them. I did it for them, to help them get what they wanted, which was for me to be out of the relationship. It created a reason to end the relationship. Did you talk to them about this? No. But I know them very well. I know what they would say. I know what they would say. The other thing, oh, I just think of this. They say to me, they, I'll have their partner say something to them, to them in the, but I know what they, and they will say, okay, they said that, but I know what they really mean. 
So it doesn't even matter what my partner says. Even if I'm having the conversation, I know my partner better than they know themselves. They're saying that they love me, but they don't really love me. I know my partner. I know. Okay. If you're going to accurately discern God's word, you need to maintain humility in actually understanding what he's saying to you. You can't be too energetic about your own ability to accurately discern God's will. You don't know him that well. Ooh, that's a scary thing to say, hey? In other words, he will surprise you. There are times in the Bible when there is greater revelation amongst God's people, and there are times when there is less revelation amongst God's people. One of the times of the greatest clarity of revelation, the times that I can think of where there was the clearest revelation to a group of people were the times of Moses and the times of Jesus. God was speaking in a clarity that created a different spiritual reality. There were bigger consequences. People were killed because they disobeyed God, and it was more severe because the revelation was so significant. Now, if you disobey God, it's kind of like, well, we don't really know what he's saying. But back then, when Moses came out of the tent with his face shining, speaking plainly to God, and you didn't do what God wanted, it was pretty clear. And so the consequences were more immediate. That's not the big point I want to make. But what I want to point out is those are the times when you really see people being surprised by God. I'll just give you, a couple, I'll give you an example here. John 4, the woman at the well. So, you might know the, uh, the story of the woman at the well. There's a woman, and she's at the well. And Jesus speaks to her. His disciples aren't around. He speaks to her prophetically. She's astounded. And just then, this is John 4, verse 27. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? They knew enough about Jesus not to get in the way. But they marveled. These are God's people. These are people who have been God's chosen people for generations. And Jesus shows up on the earth and talks and does things, and people are surprised. They are surprised. Now, we can look back. Now, this is so easy for us. We can look back and we can say, we read the story, we read the stories in the Bible from our youth, and we say, we would know better. That's so obvious. Isn't that obvious? Boy, those disciples, they, well, they weren't the brightest. You know, like, they had problems, you know. It's, we would never be fooled like that. We would never be surprised by God that way. we wouldn't be surprised. I'll give you another example. The Pharisees, or the people of God in general. Matthew 16, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and, they test, and to test him, they asked him, Jesus, to show them a sign from heaven. Jesus answered them, he answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, 
It will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. We discount the Pharisees. This is talking about, it's just one of the many examples of the Pharisees missing Jesus. Now, you might say, why wasn't Jesus doing signs? Why wouldn't he do a sign for them? He was doing many signs. There were signs all over the place. There's, he just went, like he got there, and he just came from feeding 5,000. There were signs. They wanted another sign. And we discount the Pharisees as well. We've grown up with this idea that the Pharisees are obviously bad. We could never be like the Pharisees. Ironically, to think that you're better than the Pharisees is a little pharisaical. We see them as unworthy, stubborn, power-seeking hypocrites, the spiritual leaders of their time, of course. But let me tell you, they were impressive. And many of the things that they did in their lives are the things that I think to do in my life to protect myself from making mistakes with God which makes me frightened. At two years old, they would take the scroll of the law of Torah and put honey on it, and they would have them lick it. Psalm 119, 103, verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. They were devoted to God's word their entire lives. At four years old, they would start memorizing the book of Leviticus. Why they started with Leviticus, I don't know, but they start with Leviticus. By 12 years old, they had memorized Genesis through Deuteronomy. As a teenager, they memorized the prophets and the Psalms. I would have started there. You had to publicly promise to take the yoke of the Torah upon you. They vowed to yoke themselves to the law of God. They kept hours of prayer wherever they were. I often think of hours of prayer as being a protection for myself. If I can pray more, I'll be safe from some kind of deception. They would fast twice a week. We hear of leaders in our various spiritual tracks in the world, and they talk about fasting as being a way of staying close and keeping your fire going. The Pharisees fasted twice a week. They tithed. How many people in the church today actually tithe? Actually tithe? Without a loophole of some kind. And they wouldn't just tithe their money, they would tithe their stuff. How many people actually do these things? You would think that a people so devoted would not miss God. I find it quite frightening. I would want to do all of those things in order to not become a Pharisee. Ironically, if I did all those things, I would look more like a Pharisee. There can be a danger in familiarity. There can be a danger in becoming familiar with God. Just like there's a, a danger in becoming familiar and intimate with another person in your relationship, there can be a danger in becoming familiar with God 
when couples have been together a long time, they lose their awe of each other often. They lose the mystery. They feel like they know their partner. And it can be true for Christians as well. I know God. I feel like I know what God has said to me. I know God's direction in my life. I know what he's calling me to. I would encourage you to reconsider. I would encourage you to reconsider. We need humility in our ability to understand his directions. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. For now, we, all of us, not just one, we see in a mirror dimly. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. When a, a writer of the Bible, somebody with that kind of weighty revelation proclaims that he sees in part. Only dimly. So what am I trying to say? I'm not saying that you shouldn't step out in faith. I'm going to say what I'm not saying, because people are going to say I'm saying things that I'm not. I'm not saying that you shouldn't step out in faith. I'm not saying you shouldn't act on words you have been given. I'm not saying that you shouldn't stand in faith on words that you have been given, but have not yet received. All of those things are good. What am I saying? I'm saying, do not consider your conversation with God over. Do not conclude. Do not finish your conversation with God on anything. We don't like ambiguity. That was my last sermon. And one of the ways of solving the ambiguity problem is to say, I know. I know what God has called me to. I know what he's calling me to. I know where he wants me to go. It feels comforting. I would encourage you to not consider the conversation concluded. What is God going to say today? And what is God going to say tomorrow? I have found in my own life that I have had the prophecies in my life fulfilled, fulfilled accurately, but fulfilled surprisingly. Fulfilled in ways that I didn't expect. And it's because I wasn't seeing clearly. You have heard that it said, write down the words you have received and review them. Right? How many of you have heard a teacher say, write down every word you get, review it consistently, constantly, more than you are now? Actually, raise your hand. How many have actually heard somebody say that? Right? Like, that's a big one, right? Write down your words, and almost everybody in the crowd feels guilty. Right? I have. I'm not a big writer. Like, I don't write down, and then I usually when I hear a sermon like that, I come up with a new organizational method, which fails within a week. I have many organizational methods for the words, which makes it very disorganized. Now, in a relationship, I completely agree that it is a sign of respect to remember what somebody has said. Right? I get in trouble with Natasha when I forget. 
what she said. So I am not against writing words down. So you have heard that it was said, write down the words you have received and review them. But I say to you, what is God saying today? Now this is a false choice. You don't have to choose between remembering what God has said and asking what he said today. But there is a balance. And there is also an implied message that if you feel, oh my goodness, God said something, I have to write it down, otherwise I will lose it. There is an implied feeling and an implied message that the word of the Lord is scarce and that he hardly ever speaks and that when he speaks, you better write it down because he's never going to say it again. And if you forget it, you're out of luck. You're going to miss God's will forever in your life. And I don't agree with that. I believe that the word of the Lord is plentiful in the land. I believe that God is speaking to us every day I believe that he has way more to say to us than we can possibly contain. And I believe that he repeats himself. I want to act and behave in a way that is consistent with a constant, repetitive, surprising relationship with the Lord that continues day by day, which means I do try to remember what he said, but I'm actually more interested in what he's saying. You don't have to choose. You can do both. There's a balance. Now, you, one of the realities is that you may have heard clearly. Now, you might be saying, but, Lord, but Cyrus, I heard clearly. It's like, okay, you heard clearly. Before I was talking about how you may have heard unclearly, right? Humility, unclear. But let's say that you're right. Let's say that you're like, I heard clearly, and God is telling me, you know, it's like, you heard clearly. Like, he shows up and says, don't bother them. They are hearing clearly. Don't tell them that they're not hearing clearly. They are hearing perfectly, 100% accurate. So let's say that's the case. Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, this is Genesis 22, verse 1, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, I know you love him, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, no sign of a struggle, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac and cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy, you're not going to want to see this, I and the boy will go there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said to him, here I am, my son, he said. Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. How many times does God withhold his word because he just wants us to follow and it's helpful for us to be obedient? When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order to... Oh, and laid the wood in order and bound... 
Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thickets, in in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, and it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Abraham heard clearly. Before I was talking about unclear hearing and how we have to be humble in our hearing, Abraham heard clearly. But we need to continue the conversation. If Abraham had said, you know what, angel? I already heard from the Lord. I wrote it down. And I've reviewed it on my walk here. And I will not be dismayed by your continued word because I will be faithful to what God is saying. I heard clearly. And the angel might say to him, you did hear clearly, but I have a new word. And he says, that's not how it works. You don't get to adjust. Because God's word is true. Well, if that's the definition of a true word from God, if that's your definition, I would challenge it. Because just because you've received a true word and an accurate word does not mean that you have the right to end your conversation with him. This is a stumbling stone for many Christians I see who are stumbling over words they have received in the past and stop their conversation with God. They will even list things that have happened afterwards that point in a different direction and say, but God said. They say, but God told me. He can't adjust it. There can be no further conversation on this topic. If I told you, next, I would like you to go north. I would like you to go north. And it was very clear, very accurate. Would you say to yourself, hmm, that's the word. I should get a parka. I should learn to live in very cold temperatures because I am going to be living on the most northerly place on the earth for the rest of my life. This is a call to the North Pole. Probably not. Maybe in a few steps I would say, now I would like you to go west. Now I would like you to go south. Well, now we're going to the South Pole. I guess I still need my cold weather gear, but we are going to live the rest of my life on the South Pole. No. We take his words to extremes often. Sometimes I have the most powerful word and it feels like God is sending me on this thing for the rest of my life because it's said so powerfully and it actually meant for the weekend. You will be a righteous man of valor who will conquer on Sunday. Right? Maybe it's not for the rest of my life. You will be a speaker. And in my mind, I'm thinking, a stadium. I will be Cyrus on the stadium. There will be millions who will hear me. He called me a speaker at the Bible study. It might be that, you know, like that might be what he's calling you to on Thursday night. You know, like that could be it. And then he will give you a fresh word 
on Saturday, like on for you, the next thing that you have in your life. But you have now been living on the Thursday night Bible study word for the last 20 years and mad because you haven't had a stadium, even though you've had word after word after word. And God has been trying to say, I told you to go north, but now you're not supposed to be going north. What are you doing on the North Pole? It's cold. Turn around. Even if you hear clearly, do not stop the conversation. Do not stop the conversation. And that's if you heard clearly, which is a pretty big if. Bigger than we often like to imagine, because we don't like ambiguity. As we get familiar in relationships, it is common to begin to take the other person for granted, to believe that we know what the other person wants. We become prideful in our relationship. Even if it doesn't feel prideful, we just begin to become familiar. We know what the other person thinks. This happens in human relationships. This happens in our relationship with God. I don't believe any of us will ever graduate from being surprised. Consistently surprised. And if you are asking for God to speak to you clearer and clearer, my word to you is you will have more and more surprises. The times in the history when there were less surprises was when God was less clear. And people could kind of go and do their own thing. Then there were less surprises. But when God was present, people were like, whoa, that's God. God's direction isn't just about going north. It's about, did you know that I even want you to go north? I'm a God of the north. I'm God of going north. I'm the God of these people. I'm God of coffee. I'm God of you learning how to reach out to people with pour-over coffee. Did you know that about me? No. I was anti-coffee. I was instant coffee. But you, God, are the God of pour-over coffee. I will believe we will be surprised. Very, very, very careful about taking his words as certain, certainly as forever. And I believe that the main reason why he keeps himself to a degree unclear and he always is adjusting his words is because he likes to talk to you. He wants you to be close to him. He doesn't want to go get your orders, go out for the rest of your life and complete them. That's not what he's looking for. He's a God of intimacy. He wants actually to be in a relationship with you, which can be that you don't fully know God's will yet. I wish you did because it would be more comfortable. Could I have the worship team come forward? Could you stand with me? Father, Father. I pray. What do I pray? I pray, Lord, that you would help us to exist in a place of dependence on your word. Help us to exist in a place of full dependence on your living, present, everyday word. Lord, you are the manna of our life every morning. Lord, give us the word. For that day. I believe in longer words, Lord, but I, I pray that you would help us to be comfortable in our dependence. Lord, help us to be comfortable in dependence, become familiar with dependence. And I also pray, Lord, that over us, that you would breathe your fresh word on us. I believe, Lord, that you can breathe your fresh word on us, and I pray that we would hold our hands open.
that each moment we would say, Lord, this is what I think I've heard, but I give it to you. I give it to you. I give it to you. Change it. Correct me. Redirect me. What are you saying today? And I pray that as we worship now, that you would just begin that process of unfolding, that process of asking for that fresh word, that process of saying, Lord, what is your word?